Hear these words from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, and chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree would be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was also there with him, with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Hear what the Spirit is saying. I've been thinking a lot over the last days about how important it is to hold on to each other and to remember that, that God has promised to hold on to us. It's good to be together as Pastor Ben was praying in all of the mix of life. And like Ben's child, George, to know that we can crawl up in daddy's lap or mommy's lap when we need to, um, and we'll be received. I give thanks to God for that. Will you pray with me? Loving God, we give you thanks for this community, for the ways that you give us grace and courage to create space that at least deeply tries to receive everyone just as they are. Help us, O oh God to continue to grow into your love and grace. And in these moments and in this season, may your word go forth in ways that guide us, challenge us, ground us, and draw us forward into new life. May the words of my mouth today and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, for you and you alone are our strength and our salvation. Amen. Humans are storytelling creatures. We love a good story. And it's widely affirmed that from the time that language came into existence, humans have 
spoken and sung and danced and acted out stories, stories that help people know their history, stories that explain or try to explain why things are the way they are, stories that help us imagine our place as humans in the universe, stories that help us laugh at our foibles and at the earthy realities of life together, stories that celebrate human desire and love, stories that express all the other human experiences of beauty and brokenness that are part of life. Most of the stories in our Bible began as spoken or sung tales. They were repeated over and over again until the time that language found its way into written characters. You see, there wasn't always a book. The stories originated in particular cultures, in particular times, among particular communities, and were spoken in languages whose words and idioms are difficult to translate into our words and idioms. So even though biblical stories are pretty engaging, there are some amazing stories in the Bible. Interpretation of these stories is required because they're not just good stories, but narratives that interpret the world, that interpret us, that interpret what it means to be human, what it means to be in relationship with God and with one another. A problem is that there are interpretations of core stories in the Bible that have been proffered as the only correct and true interpretation. And often those are the interpretations that tend to be most prevalent in the collective imagination. And these hardened and often deeply erroneous interpretations lead those outside the tradition and often us too to ask, how can you believe this? How in the world is that helpful? How is that life-giving? How is it meaningful? What kind of God do you serve? Today we get a, an excerpt from a doozy of an example of this. The story in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 is the second biblical description of how God created life. Distinguished feminist scholar of Old Testament, Phyllis Tribble, says, and I quote, according to traditional interpretations, this story is about Adam and Eve. It proclaims male superiority and female inferiority as the will of God. It portrays a woman as temptress and troublemaker who is dependent upon and dominated by her husband. Anybody ever heard that one? 
Now we know there are other derivatives of this, that the, for example, the snake is the symbol of the devil, that the devil came to the woman because she was weaker, more susceptible to temptation and manipulation, that the woman's wiles connected negatively with her sexuality can be blamed for Adam's transgression, and that this story confirms that God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. <laughs> These interpretations, my friends, we can laugh. Thank God we can laugh. Because we're at Foundry, we can laugh. <laughs> These interpretations, however, are not benign but rather support and inspire violence and suppression and blame and denial and countless other human transgressions. And yet, these interpretations have continued to be given credence. People still preach and teach this stuff. Tribble, based on her close reading of the story in its original language and literary context, contends that none of the citations from the story used to support that stuff are accurate, and most are not actually present in the story at all. It's just not there. There is not sufficient time <laughs> to share the fullness of Tribble's insight and others on this story. But I want us to look closely at several key pieces of the story in order to disrupt at least some of the assumptions that the story tends to get saddled with. Are you ready? We're gonna go in. If you want to, you can open your Bible, which would be interesting, and um, you can look at it on your phone, or you can actually open the book. You may or may not find that useful today. We're gonna look at some specific stuff. Um, I'm gonna get right to it. All right, so first, let's talk about the word translated man. In chapter two of Genesis, you will find the word translated in the NRSV and other translations. You're gonna find the word man a lot of times. Now, the Hebrew word that is there translated man is ha-adam, A-D-A-M. Okay, ha-adam is a play on the word for earth. That is dust or ground, and that word for dust, earth, ground is ha-adama. So God, out of ha-adama, creates ha-adam. For all of Genesis 2, the appropriate translation of ha-adam is not man. It's not man, but rather earth creature, earth creature. At this point in the story, there is no sexual identification of the earth creature. The earth creature's pronouns might appropriately be they, them, and theirs. Because this creature holds in its earthy body the stuff that will become ish, isha male and female later in the story. 
The earth creature is formed of the earth and padded into shape by Yahweh God, who then breathes into them the breath of life. And then God plants a garden and sets the earth creature in the garden to tend and guard it. God gives Ha-Adam this guidance. You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, what happens? You shall die. You shall die. Let's notice three important details here. First, God has provided all that the earth creature needs to live, to be sustained. Every tree is available to feed Ha-Adam, including the precious tree of life, that symbol of life itself. Second, there is only, only one, one tree that's off limits, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The consequence of eating that tree is what? Death. The name of the tree signals the choice before the earth creature, adhering to life-giving limits set by Yahweh God, good, and disobedience with its death-dealing consequence, evil. Now let's look at this. God has said there is one thing, just one thing that you may not do. Why is God doing this? Is God doing this because God is trying to punish Ha-Adam somehow? Is this punishment? Why is God saying you will not eat of this tree? What's the consequence? Death. God wants to keep the creature alive. God wants what's good for the creature. The only reason there's a limit is so the Ha-Adam might experience life. Okay, are we good on that so far? All right. Um, finally, third thing. Notice, I think this is very interesting. Notice that the same act, in this case eating, can result in very different consequences depending upon whether the wise, healthy boundaries are honored. If you receive sustenance from this tree, all is well. But if you seek sustenance from the tree that's out of bounds, things get broken. Harmony is lost. Can you imagine any activity that if not kept within healthy boundaries can break bodies or break relationships or trust? Tribble writes as we move on in the story, according to Yahweh God, what the earth creature needs is a companion who is neither subordinate nor superior, one who alleviates isolation through identity. From one flesh, Ha-Adam, diverse bodies are created, bodies drawn to then and desirous of the other to again be one flesh. In Genesis 2.25, we read, now they both were naked, the man and woman, and they were not ashamed. The nakedness here is a symbol and a sign of what Tribble calls holy insecurity. You see, there are threats to the creatures 
but in their most primal created nature, they know themselves secure, held secure in Yahweh God. They know and they trust the provision and the parameters of God. And this allows them to live without shame, without fear. They know they don't have to be afraid. God's got them, God's sustaining them, there's nothing to be ashamed of, for they're living in the fullness of the garden as they have been given it as gift, with the appropriate boundary. Now, I've referred to some pieces of the story we didn't hear today in order to set proper context for the encounter of the woman and the serpent that we did hear. You know, these two have gotten a fairly bad rap over the years. Just after we've heard that the naked, that is the trusting and the vulnerable woman and man um, are, are there, we encounter the serpent who was more crafty than all the wild animals that the Lord God has made. I think this last bit is key just for clarity. The serpent is not an evil power apart from God's creation, not some amorphous devil, but is rather a creature who uses the gifts of its created nature, its cunning, and becomes a tempter. There's a lot I could say about that. And there are all sorts of associations we can make about this, not the least of which is the power of the reptilian brain to incite fear when fear is unnecessary. But in the literary context of Genesis 2 and 3, the reptile really becomes a plot device. You know, sometimes in a good story, you just need a character to show up and say the thing or do the thing that's going to move the thing forward. And in this story, well, what do we get? We get Snake, all right? So Snake comes and uh, asks the question, does the thing uh, to really bring to the center the real issue, the life and death choice between obedience and disobedience, between trusting the provision and protection of God or allowing fear to incite grasping for power and control. The serpent engages the woman in theological conversation. Tribble notes that neither of them, the woman nor the serpent, use the formal name for God. It's translated in the NRSV, Lord God. In the direct trans, more direct translation, it would be Yahweh God. But they don't use that name that has been used in the story up to that point. When they begin having their theological conversation, it's just about God. And I want us to think for a minute about how much easier it is to ignore or to blow off or bully or betray someone who we've depersonalized someone who we've made into an object or a stereotype that we don't have to look at or think about as someone we actually know. And the serpent asks a leading question of the woman, did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is tricky. You see, God had said, of course, all but one. So the serpent here highlights not the generosity and abundance, but the limit set by God. The woman answers with strength and clarity, even makes it stronger than God originally said. And then the serpent 
I mean, who is this creature? Has the audacity to claim the knowledge of God and proceeds to interpret what God really meant when setting the boundary around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You won't die. You'll be like God. You won't be diminished. You won't lose anything. You won't break any healthy relationship or do damage to your body or soul if you cross this line. You will be more powerful. You'll be more free. You'll be more alive, more fulfilled. You'll know good and evil. You know, I guess if you're the original earth creatures, you don't know what you don't know. I mean, why would anybody want to know evil? I mean, that's just my question. Anyway, and then, and then in the story comes the moment of truth, the turning point in the story, in the text, and in our story. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband. If you're reading along with me, look at what comes next. Her husband who was with her. How about that? She hadn't wandered off. She hadn't been lured away by the snake. The creatures were hanging out together, met up with the serpent, and this conversation ensued. What was the man doing? Weren't hearing from him. Tribble highlights the agency of the woman in the story. Three actions immediately follow her three insights. Taking, eating, giving. These actions by the woman, however, do not tell the whole tale of disobedience because the story is very careful to tell us that the man is with her. Yet throughout the scene, the man has remained silent. He does not speak for obedience. His presence is passive. The contrast that he offers to the woman in the story is not strength or resolve. He's not trying to talk anybody out of it. He's not trying to get out of the situation. He's not doing anything as far as we can tell. He's just there. The story does not say that the woman tempted him. It does not present him in any way as reluctant or hesitating. Y'all, the point is that the woman and the man illustrate the range of human responses to temptation and transgression. Both activity and passivity, doing something, doing nothing, initiative and acquiescence, both of those things are equal modes of lawlessness. The woman and man were mutually responsible for their own actions. 
So let's be clear. The woman is not the villain. I'd like for us to repeat that part. <laughs> the woman is not the villain. Nor is the woman an innocent victim of the devil who made her do it. Okay? Not the victim, not the villain. Also, and of course we don't have to say the first part about the man because the man's never said to be the villain of this piece. The man is not the innocent victim of the temptress woman. Let's say that one again. <laughs> the man is not the innocent victim of the temptress woman. Who, by the way, in this story and the way it's been interpreted, I should say, the way this story has been interpreted, the temptress woman is the devil that made him do it. That is not the case. The woman and the man both eat what Yahweh warned would do harm. And paradise is lost. The life of perfect love and freedom, of harmony, of mutuality, of openness, of vulnerability without fear, of trust, interdependence. The sexually differentiated earth creatures who once were naked and unashamed now feel the need to hide, to hide who they are in their sexual nature. They hide their bodies with loincloths. And if you read the rest of the story, you see that they hide from God too. The creatures go from a state of not needing any defenses. Makes us really uncomfortable to think about, right? <laughs> They go from a state of not needing any defensives to de defenses to becoming defensive when Yahweh God seeks them out. Hiding, defensiveness, denials, rationalizations, blame, and discord between people who once were one flesh. That's the prize for eating the forbidden fruit. I find it fascinating that this story, this story about which I could say a lot more, has been used, this story has been used to try to make LGBTQ persons hide, to make human sexual desire feel shameful to blame women for everything <laughs> and to rationalize all sorts of violence. This story, isn't that weird? But why do you imagine that that's so? Why in the world? Would that be so?